Turkey's geopolitical vision at this point in time under the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, is to render Turkey a leading country in the Muslim world, to revise the geopolitical status quo that emerged after the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923 to its own benefit and reclaim influence in post-Ottoman territories like Syria, Iraq, like the Balkans, the Eastern Mediterranean, North Africa, and so on. Turkish foreign policy in the Eastern Mediterranean. What objectives does Turkey have? How and why is Turkish foreign policy revisionist? What about the conflict and the non-state actors in the Eastern Mediterranean? And what do Turkish actions mean for the region? Listen to this episode in conversation with Dr. Zinan Asjaras to find out more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, the Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos, and this episode explores Turkish foreign policy, particularly in the Eastern Mediterranean. For this episode, I'm hosting Dr. Zinanas Jaras, and Dr. Zinanas Jaras is a researcher with the Peace and Research Institute Oslo Cyprus Center, focusing on Eastern Mediterranean geopolitics. He's also the co-founder of Geopolitical Cyprus, and his latest monograph, published in 2020 in Greek, is titled International Politics in the Eastern Mediterranean. Hello, Zinanas. It's great to have you on our show. Hello. Thank you very much for the invitation and, and for having me. Great. So I just wanted to begin by asking you to tell us a bit about your current work, your more recent publications. And what has actually inspired you to get involved with uh, Turkish foreign policy as an expert in the field? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, f- first of all, let me say that I, I, I got very much interested in, in Turkish foreign policy because during my undergraduate studies, I realized that although I, I am a Cypriot, a Greek Cypriot, um, I didn't know enough about um, about Turkey, you know, the occupying force in Cyprus. And um, I also realized that n- not many people, um, not many other people did uh, as well. I mean, although we have this major problem, Turkey is a largely under-analyzed or under-examined force, and we tend to see it only through the prism of uh, of Cyprus and sometimes Greece. However, Turkey is a, is a country that has extensions far beyond uh, Cyprus and Greece, and in order to be able to understand Turkey, you need to be able to uh, have a good grasp of what's happening within the country and obviously other dimensions of its foreign policy. So I started uh, doing research on that during my undergraduate years, looking at Turkish-EU relations. And later I decided that I wanted to research Turkey, but not in relation to Cyprus or Greek-Turkish relations. I wanted to understand Turkey beyond that. So my PhD thesis was about Turkish foreign policy in the Middle East, specifically Israel, Syria, and Iran. I managed to to have a a sort of a view that is not associated uh, necessarily with my experiences, because that would also make me somewhat biased towards the issue, but also um, be more objective when I present this issue to other people. 
and um, and this was my experience. I mean, when I when I speak about Turkey, Syria, or Turkey, the Middle East, and and I leave Cyprus outside, is uh, is easier for you know other people, at least an international audience, to 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 listen to what you have to say. Well, beyond that, um, what I'm doing right now is I keep doing my research on, on, on Turkish foreign policy and Turkey, but I also expanded my research to the Eastern Mediterranean inevitably because, uh, you know, there is not much expertise in that field internationally. Most of this expertise comes from the region itself. And there was a huge need to understand the dynamics and developments in, in this region over the past years, especially during the 2000s, uh, 2010s rather. So I started doing that since the early to mid 2010s. And of course, Turkey is a huge part of this, of this approach. My work at Prio focuses on, on three main pillars. One is the Eastern Mediterranean as a, as a new region or sub-region. Uh, the other one is Turkish foreign policy. And the other one is the foreign policy of the Republic of Cyprus. These are, these are the main three pillars. And I recently published um, a book on the international politics in the Eastern Mediterranean in Greek. Um, it, it is the first of its kind, looking at, at the international politics of this region. And I'm currently working on another monograph, almost done with it, um, on Turkish foreign policy um, under the AKP during the past decade. And, uh, and a number of other papers about Turkish foreign policy in Iraq, uh, in Syria, I'm finishing also a collective volume on the foreign policy of the Republic of Cyprus, in which you also participate, Petros. So, yes, a lot of different things, uh, very busy times and also very interesting times for, uh, for the region that is going through um, important changes and power shifts. And it's always in flux, basically. Yeah. Indeed, uh, very busy times, very interesting times. And it's good to see a, a lot of researchers developing this really important niche that also tries to, I mean, as you've rightly mentioned, you, you've uh, obviously having a separate background. You, had you not decided to um, diversify and sort of take a, a step back and distance yourself from uh, Cyprus is your object at that particular point, you wouldn't be able to discover the uh, multifaceted aspects of this region. And uh, it's great to be able to develop this very niche understanding while also looking at uh, Cyprus uh, as well, foreign policy, but and at the same time, the international relations of this region, which is absolutely uh, fascinating, at least for me as well. I was... Uh, I started uh, doing my uh, research and my PhD because I was very interested in this region. But uh, without digressing, I wanted to ask you again about more uh, Turkey more specifically. This is probably a rather broad question, but throughout your research thus far, what, in your view, are Turkey's primary objectives at this moment in the region? What does it hope to achieve? That's an important question because um, many people are perplexed about what is happening in Turkey. And um, uh, because of that, they don't know how to analyze it or how to handle it if we're talking about policy circles. Um, in my view, I think we need to look at two dimensions um, of what Turkey is, is in going about, you know, what, what Turkey is pursuing. One of them is, is the ideological uh, dimension of things. Uh, basically, 
um, how Turkey uh, and the current government sees the world, uh, sees its own place in the world, uh, how it perceives its own identity, and ultimately what is their geopolitical vision. Uh, and the other dimension is um, the material power dimension, basically uh, the uh, power components of, of Turkey's aggregate power. Um, so if, if we look at it from, from the latter perspective, which is a mostly realist approach and, and uh, more of an offensive realist approach, we will reach the conclusion that um, a, a power that wants to change power status, that is, Turkey wants to become a great power or an interregional power and move away from its middle power status. To do that, Turkey needs to have access to uh, resources, more resources. Uh, it needs to be able to project power abroad. The farthest, the better. It needs to uh, also develop its, its means to do that. Uh, for example, its military, we see Turkey uh, developing uh, its, its navy uh, a lot and uh, we saw the navy becoming um, a very important part of, of Turkish strategy in recent uh, years. So uh, in order to have a full picture, we need to take these two together because some people make the mistake of you know, attributing ideological characteristics to Turkish foreign policy without looking at anything else. And other people do the mistake of, you know, seeing Turkish foreign policy in purely, quote unquote, rational um, terms or power terms or material terms. We do need to sort of combine these two elements. And, and what we get if we do that is, is a country that has most of the capabilities needed to pursue a specific geopolitical vision. Turkey's geopolitical vision at this point in time under the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, is to render Turkey a leading country in the Muslim world, is to revise the geopolitical status quo that emerged after the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923 to its own benefit, and reclaim influence in um, post-Ottoman territories like Syria, Iraq, like the Balkans, the Eastern Mediterranean, North Africa, and so on. So uh, that's, that's the ideological vision. And at the same time, to do that, Turkey has employed its military. We saw it in Syria and Iraq. Uh, we saw it in Libya. It's establishing um, military bases in, in various countries. We saw it in Qatar, we saw it in Somalia, we saw it in, in Libya and military presence in Iraq and Syria again. And uh, developing its navy, as I said before, we saw it with major um, uh, naval drills in the Eastern Mediterranean, like uh, Blue Homeland and Seawolf uh, since 2019. Um, we saw it with lawfare tactics in, for example, the uh, EZ agreement that it, it now has with, um, with Tripoli in Libya and uh, also the multiple survey operations and, um, uh, and drilling operations that it has undertaken in the Eastern Mediterranean, again, mostly off the coasts of uh, Cyprus, north and south. So we see that this is not just a geopolitical vision that is abstract. 
it is something that is systematically pursued. And we need to keep that in mind because um, anything Turkey has been saying over the past years about the revision of, of the Treaty of Lausanne, about the, the claims that it wants to make over maritime zones in the Eastern Mediterranean, or the, the provision of security, so to speak, to other keen communities or Muslim or Turkish communities abroad, Turkey has taken all this very seriously and has carried out its threats and, and came through in, in multiple uh, occasions. So we have a, an ideological vision on the one hand and we have the active pursuit and development of the means and, uh, and capabilities that will basically realize that ideological vision. And just on a final note on this, of course, Turkey is never unopposed or it, it always faces uh, uh, some difficulties and some constraints. So uh, when, when Turkey uh, faces uh, serious constraints, especially you know, from great powers, either Russia or the United States, uh, or domestic constraints, uh, then uh, foreign policy is mitigated uh, to a certain degree. So uh, just, this is just a note to say that um, Turkey doesn't always get what it wants, but it certainly pursues uh, its, its goals very systematically and methodically. So there's a lot of things to unpack here, and it's a great insight that you have. But let's try and uh, breaking down these uh, various objectives by first looking at a case study. And I want to look at Syria a bit more closely, because in Syria for the last few years, Turkish forces have continued to occupy the northern parts of Syria, and it is uh, estimated that this strategy also crashes any aspirations for Kurdish nationalism in the region because those uh, parts as well were under uh, Kurdish control during the uh, civil war. But what is the end game here? Is Turkey essentially occupying northern Syria to also minimize the threat of Kurdish nationalism back at home, or is it having uh, more of an expansionist agenda in Syria? Well, it's both, clearly. The Kurdish threat is, is not something new. It's been going on at least since the late 70s. If we look at the, the PKK specifically and not the Kurdish problem in broader terms, which goes obviously back in history. But um, the, the Kurdish threat has been perhaps the, the most important security problem in Turkey from the Cold War until today. Uh, the AKP has adopted a different approach in, in dealing with it in, in the first years, first couple of terms in power. But eventually, uh, especially since 2015, it had to change its, uh, its approach because it aligned with, um, with the Nationalist Movement Party. And uh, because of electoral needs, it also had to project a, a harsher rhetoric and policy towards the Kurdish issue because that is what sort of brought the conservative and nationalist votes to, to the AKP. Beyond that, though, the Kurdish threat from Syria was, was also the pretext or the opportunity, if, if you will, to, for Turkey to project power within Syria. Because on the one hand, you have this Kurdish uh, threat that Turkey said it will not tolerate, and indeed it did not tolerate it. 
you have the ultimatum that Turkey uh, gave to the Kurdish forces in Syria that they should not pass to the uh, west of the Euphrates River. And when they did, Turkey actually intervened. It used the PKK and the Islamic State in the same you know, phrasing and said that we are going in Syria to combat terrorism uh, with uh, the first um, operation that was in 2016 with uh, the, the Euphrates shield. So basically their, their first concern was to deal with Kurdish expansionism in Syria. But then if you look at the timeline of events, you will see that Turkey managed to solidify its presence, even though it was through proxies in Syria. And then it proceeded to three more interventions. Some say two, I say three. One in Afrin, one in eastern Syria, in north northeastern Syria, and one in Idlib. People don't count the one in Idlib as, a, as an intervention, but I do think it is, it is one. So uh, through these four uh, interventions, uh, Turkey created a zone, of course, with interruptions, but it is a zone, four zones, let's say, in north, in, in, along the Turkish-Syrian border. And, and in, the, in, in those zones, Turkey is changing things a lot. And, and this is the important part, because if, if this was only about military operations that go to deter uh, Kurdish expansionism, then we would say that these are defensive operations. Um, and perhaps the Turkish troops will retreat or withdraw after the war is over and the Kurdish threat is managed. Uh, however, if we see what is happening within those zones, we will understand Turkey's plans. And what Turkey is doing is proceeding to demographic engineering, basically kicking the Kurds out and resettling their Sunni refugees that come from other places of Syria and are now in Turkey, Turkey takes them and um, helps them settle in these areas that Turkey controls in northern Syria. Turkey is also building, you know, industrial cities, investing money in these uh, in these areas, building uh, hospitals, universities, schools, uh, and so on, trying to win the hearts and minds of the local population. In these projects, it is the local population that is basically employed which is very important for the allegiance of this population to, uh, to Turkey. And also, uh, Turkey is, is mingling in, in local authorities, uh, appointing people that are attached to the Turkish government. So in a sense, Turkey has the control of these territories by proxy without directly uh, being there. Of course, there are certain, you know, uh, Turkish troops or and units that uh, support and consult and so on. But most of what I described happens through Sunni Syrians or other Syrians that are uh, loyal to Turkey for one reason or another. So what is the end goal here? I'm not sure the end goal is for Turkey to annex these territories. But I do see a, a status quo that will very much resemble to what is going on in Cyprus. So basically occupied territories that depend on and are controlled by Turkey without actually Turkey being there in political terms, without 
Turkish politicians uh, controlling the institutions and the workings of these areas. In that sense, Turkey will be able, if it so wishes, to to withdraw its own troops uh, at a certain point in the future in the context perhaps of a broader settlement of the conflict and say, you know, I am done here. The, the threat that I came for is, is dealt with. I don't need to have my troops here anymore. Um, and, and I withdraw. However, by withdrawing, Turkey has already created a certain infrastructure and certain conditions that, that still allow it to have influence over those territories and also at the same time allow it to um, or rather they, they create for Turkey a number of bargaining chips uh, that will help it be involved in the negotiations about the future of Syria and be able to exchange things between uh, with with Russia and the United States and the Syria government and the and, and Iran and so on. So it's a multi-level I would say uh, strategy. Right. So in order to achieve this expansionist uh, agenda at this point, in order to be able to effectively control that this, uh, this part, Turkey relies on uh, both of its own uh, resources, but also on the proxy support that it engages with, uh, specifically with the local population and the support that it, that it has to rely on. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I mean, because you've mentioned this as well with the during, with the conflict uh, in military terms, uh, it also relies on proxies and it has to arm and fund proxies. Uh, so I want to focus a bit more on these uh, proxies and uh, specifically, as we call them, these violent non-state actors that sometimes Turkey engages with. So what sort of groups does Turkey support in the Levant, but also in another and elsewhere, for example, in Africa? And I guess to put it a bit more blatantly, do you feel that Turkey is directly or indirectly supporting terrorism in the process? Well, that, that's a good question, um, especially the, the latter one, because, um, you know, terrorism in this context is not as clear cut as to what, what exactly it means. But um, I mean, terrorism, it's never really exactly. Clear, yes. like it's a... But but all, but but we're talking about extremist groups, basically. So to, to go back a step, Turkey supports a number of groups. I mean, there's I don't know, there's dozens, if not hundreds of, of groups in Syria right now. And uh, if we wanted to talk about a couple of umbrella organizations, we have the, what was formerly the Free Syrian Army that that then became, you know, sort of the Turkish Free Syrian Army or the uh, Syrian National Army or the National Liberation Front. These are a few umbrella organizations. But within them, you had groups like, like Akhrar al-Sham, the Sultan Murad Division, uh, Jaish al-Tahrir, um, the Nur al-Din al-Zinki movement, uh, Hamza Division, and, and a few others. Some of them... Uh, are I would say most of them are considered to be moderate Islamic uh, movements. Others, like um, I don't know the the Hayat Tahrir al Sham, the the former Al Qaeda, or Khurash al Din and the Turkestan Islamic Party, these are more these are extremist groups affiliated with with Al Qaeda at least ideologically but there's no no hard evidence about Turkey supporting 
these, you know, jihadists. However, we should clarify that the situation, you know, in, in Syria on the ground is, is not like we see it from the outside or, or on a paper. You know, you see a number, a list of, of groups, let's say, and, and you say, okay, these are moderate and, and these are extremist groups. Well, in reality, things are not as simple or as clear cut because you have people of different ideological backgrounds and different motivations within each group. So as, as we've seen from videos and pictures and, and, and know from reports on the ground, we know that there are extremists in these um, so-called you know, moderate Islamic groups as well. But to, to be more uh, you know, straightforward, you're asking whether Turkey is supporting terrorism. I think it has supported terrorism. I, I, think, it, I think Turkey has supported extremism uh, in Syria, both when it comes to the Islamic State and the Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. But it has, it, it, it has done so tactically. I mean, if you, if you look at phases in the conflict where the Kurds were expanding, for example, Turkey has uh, supported the Islamic State so that they, they become a stumbling block for, for the Kurds. The same happens in, in Idlib, where Turkey has allegedly supported Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups to become a problem or to help them remain a problem for the for the Syria regime. It's been doing it tactically over the past couple of years as well, because, as I said before, Turkey has also entered Idlib, the northwestern uh, part of the country. Idlib is the final, let's say, area where anti-regime rebels are positioned, uh, including Al-Qaeda, the, the HTS and, and other uh, groups. And the Assad army, the, the Assad regime, is, is conducting an offensive there. They've taken back a lot of territories in the north and, uh, and east of the, of the province. But Turkey is controlling a zone in the, in the north of the province. So Turkey is using some of these groups tactically to create friction and cost to, to the Assad, uh, Assad regime. Uh, so, uh, to put it shortly, Turkey has indeed supported extremism, but I wouldn't say that this support is systematic or even ideological, you know, because I, I don't think that Turkey wants, I wouldn't say that ISIS, for example, is, um, is how Turkey wants to, you know, deal with its problems. It helps tactically, as I said, but other than that, the Islamic State, which is one example, or even Al-Qaeda, have their own issues with Turkey and, and present their own threats to Turkey. So it's, it would be very simplistic to say that um, Turkey and Al-Qaeda or Turkey and, and, Islam, and the Islamic State are, are one and the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it appears that it's much more of a strategic, uh, pragmatic mm -hmm. approach to dealing with its problems, as you've highlighted. I want to take a step back now and examine uh, another more uh, trendy topic in the region, which is the activity in the Eastern Mediterranean vis-a-vis uh, -vis the energy and the hydrocarbons discovery. You've already touched a good basis on this. You've uh, argued that, in general, Turkish foreign policy appears to be revisionist and uh, a lot of... Uh, other reputable analysis suggests so as well. But when we look at the hydrocarbons discovery, there's also the counter narrative that essentially Turkish activity 
in the region when it comes to hostile activity and attempting to control and contain the narrative of hydrocarbons or essentially to control the resources uh, in, in the region. It's uh, not necessarily a game of geopolitical revisionism. It's more like, you know, an attempt to exert greater influence and essentially expand uh, even further in the region and legitimize its own uh, policy, its own occupation elsewhere, for example, as in Cyprus. So do you feel that, how would you respond to critics arguing that this is purely and an attempt to legitimize and overcome the obstacles that Turkey finds in its way in controlling uh, and uh, its already occupied areas uh, in a much more formal way in uh, by highlighting its political control if you like yeah well um, this is important because this is this is always a, a heated debate uh, and it's a, a debate basically about the chicken and the egg because the question is who started it and and who is responding or reacting to whom is turkey uh, basically defending itself against the exclusion that other states in the area are attempting and that's that's the argument of turkish analysts and of course the turkish government and you see it very often in the media also adopted by a number of of um, analysts in in the us or in europe and so on uh, saying that you know uh, what Turkey is doing is just um, its effort to to overcome these obstacles that um, Eastern Mediterranean country has have have posed have um, set uh, for it in the, in the region, and and that's not not really true. It's partly true to the extent that there is always actions and reactions within a geopolitical setting. So of course, if we take this as a uh, as a protracted, uh, let's say, crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean between Turkey and and Cyprus, Greece, and over the past few, few years, also Israel, Egypt, and, and other states, then we could say that there is a policy or a strategy of, of escalation and de-escalation, depending on how things are going. But I, th- I think that this is a very n- narrow understanding of things, because... When, when assessing Turkish foreign policy in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, you need to also take into account Turkish foreign policy elsewhere. That's one thing. And also, you need to also take into account the history of, of, the, of the issues at hand. If you look at, for example, uh, the, the concept of the Blue Homeland, which extends to, an, I don't know, it, it includes the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean... And it goes all the way to, to Libya, um, the Libyan Sea, basically. You will see that it was conceived, or rather coined, that's more appropriate, it, it was coined in 2006. That was even before the, the Republic of Cyprus um, uh, you know, gave license to any company for explorations in, it, in its exclusive economic zone. It was even before the Republic of Cyprus completed the delimitation of its exclusive economic zone with all three countries, I mean, Lebanon, Israel, and and Egypt. Moreover, if we go further back in history and we look at the writings of, uh, let's say, of Davutoglu, we we will see that the concept was there and and their vision, the vision of this 
movement the AKP belonged to, the Miligiorush, let's say, movement, a political Islamic movement, they did have this understanding and this vision about, about the Eastern Mediterranean. Moreover, if you go to, say, 2010-2011, you will find the Turkish-Libya agreement in the writings of uh, Jihad Yaiji, which is a, an, an admiral that was basically, uh, that became a confidant of, of Erdogan after 2014-2015 and advocated for these new uh, maritime zones that Turkey should pursue. Well, what was the result? The result was the exact same deal that the IG proposed in 2011. It was achieved in 2019 with Tripoli in Libya. Also, if you if you go beyond the Eastern Mediterranean, you will see that this pattern of of activities, and this uh, and these includes, as I said before, surveys, uh, maritime surveys, and maritime drillings, expands to the Middle East as well. You will see Turkey uh, controlling territories in Syria, controlling territories in Iraq, uh, getting involved in in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, trying to acquire a role there, and going deeper into Africa, uh, into the Persian Gulf, uh, and so on. So you cannot um, dissociate the Eastern Mediterranean for this broader geopolitical vision. Actually, the Eastern Mediterranean has become the bridgehead or a stepping stone, if you will, for the implementation of Turkey's broader um, geopolitical vision that goes all the way to Africa. If there was no Eastern Mediterranean strategy, revisionist strategy, the Libya affair, the Libya intervention of Turkey would not be as possible. And also, the, the, the intervention in Libya would not be possible to link to developments in the Eastern Mediterranean that pertain to maritime zones and so on. So, yes, Turkey might be, to some extent, reacting to what the other states are doing. But at the same time, Turkey is unwilling to respond to any of the criticism or abide by any aspects of the international law, be it in Cyprus and uh, with regard to the occupation or to maritime zones. And it basically chooses to impose its own geopolitical vision and uh, legal view, let's say, of things in the Eastern Mediterranean through military uh, and other means. Well, this is the uh, definition of revisionism. What Turkey is doing generally speaking, is the definition of revisionism. And no matter how they, they're trying to spin it, their spin is, is just is political. It's, you know, it's communication. It's a narrative. In the substance of things, this strategy and this approach, it is revisionist. Right. So you've, um, you've also, since you've also brought up the maritime and the EEZ delimitation disputes, uh, and, and, and also you've referred to how Turkey is violating international law uh, in essence. I'm a bit skeptical about the upcoming, I mean, the creation of the East Mediterranean Gas Forum and uh, the exclusion of Turkey specifically. Do you feel that the forum is likely to be useful in a sustainable way? 
Do you think that it's just a symbolic gesture of regional cooperation without any real concrete results? And also, obviously, from a foreign policy perspective, does Turkey really care much about its exclusion from the forum? Or will it just still see its way through based on the current activity that we see today? That's actually a very good question, because I really don't think that Turkey sees the forum or any other partnerships in the region as being threatening to Turkey. I think Turkey realizes that these partnerships or organizations and institutions are not in fact as important as they seem. However, this presents Turkey with a, a great opportunity to use these uh, activities as a, as a threatening and hostile movement against its own self because that later allows it to legitimize its positions and argue that it's being excluded, it's being attacked, it's being that the other states are being unjust towards it. And these arguments, Turkey, Turkey has been made, making these arguments in international fora, in the, inter, in the European Union, uh, to the UN, with the submission of different coordinates about maritime zones, and in, of course, different allies, the United States uh, and so on. It is a problem that this approach followed in the Eastern Mediterranean by the rest of the states lacks substance. Be and that's the truth. Because, I mean, lacks substance vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, dealing, I mean, vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, in, in dealing with Turkey, in, in becoming a deterrent power. So the, the, the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum is an institution, however, it's, an, it's a monothematic institution that has to do only with gas. It has to do with supply and consumption of, of gas. However, not even in that one thematic area has the forum managed to create international uh, substantial cooperation uh, you see, for example, Israel and Egypt collaborating and actually expanding their collaboration in the energy sector. Uh, you see Cyprus and, um, and Egypt potentially cooperating. There is a deal there about a pipeline to, from Cyprus to Egypt. And then you see uh, the scenario about uh, the East Med pipeline. One of them is going from Israel to Cyprus and then Greece, and the other one is going from Israel to Egypt and then Greece. However, the 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 pipeline, the East, the East Med pipeline is not there. The Cyprus Egypt pipeline is not there. So what we have in this in this forum is basically Israel and Egypt cooperating in the energy sector. And until that becomes something more, until it becomes a more collective, a more multilateral think that will actually socialize and, and interconnect the different interests uh, of these countries, um, the forum cannot have a substantial role, either in the, um, re the integration of the region or the deterrence of Turkey. Right now, the approach that is followed is, uh, is twofold. Uh, by Cyprus and Greece and also other states. On the one hand, they project this stick to Turkey uh, that 
you know, shows all these countries aligning together in a sense and uh, excluding Turkey. But on the other hand, they present the carrot and, and they say, you know, actually you can't be part of it. It's, we don't want to exclude you. You're actually excluding yourself because of, of your behavior, because you don't want to abide by international law and so on. What is paradoxical here for me is that an initiative that aims to integrate the region and create um, an organization um, that will uh, bridge uh, the different interests and differences is being used as a balancing tool. How can you use a project that by definition is peaceful, is to bring everyone together, is to include everyone, to basically counterbalance a revisionist power. This to me is somewhat paradoxical. And I think Cyprus and Greece need to uh, find ways of, of changing or, or mitigating this, this problem because it sends mixed signals and there is no clear strategy as to how uh, the problems will be breached. Uh, because, you know, Turkey on the one hand does not want to, to make any concessions. The, the rest of the states do not allow Turkey to enter the organization if there are no concessions made. So how do you overcome this uh, polarization uh, without further crisis and conflict? Right. Those are very important questions. You know, sometimes the analysis, the depth and these questions that we have to ask ourselves, they're unfortunately missing from the Greek-speaking narrative. And it's actually very, very different. It paints a completely different, and uh, I mean, not a completely different, but I guess often an exaggerated picture of Turkish foreign policy. And the reason I'm bringing this up because it's actually damaging to uh, policymaking. Uh, and uh, and also, I guess, the impression and the insecurity it causes sometimes uh, within uh, public opinion. Uh, so I want to ask you, what does such analysis usually highlight when we look at Greek and Cypriot audiences? And what are the limitations of this analysis and the damage that is inflicted? Yeah, well, I think the exaggeration... Um, is about the expectations that we can have from these initiatives and projects in the Eastern Mediterranean. The, the narrative and, and, and the political speech is always about us trying to take effective measures against Turkey. And um, uh, it's good to do that, obviously. However, if you if the steps taken do not have the power of deterring Turkey or cancelling its activities in the area, then they are not effective. And no, no matter how much you try to present them as effective, they still are not effective. And I think the, the trap we fall in is this, basically trying to present something that is is good in principle because to cooperate with other states and have partnerships, it is a good thing. But the trap is that we tr we're trying to present these partnerships and, and the forum as, as something that they are not. They are not alliances. 
they are not balancing blocks or deterrent blocks. They're merely fora of collaboration in various sectors, mostly low politics sectors. So the result of this rhetoric, uh, you know, this exaggerated rhetoric and um, these uh, exaggerated expectations is that people actually believe well, not all, all people, but a, a large portion of, of the electorate of the society uh, believes that these are effective measures taken against a foreign aggressor, but they're not. However, people tend to settle to, or if you will, compromise with these so-called effective measures. They fall back to that. They say, okay, we're dealing with it. It's going to be fine. There's going to be a solution sooner or later uh, through this approach to things. And by doing that, they they don't think harder as to what else can be done. Because that's a good approach. That's one approach. It can still be one of the approaches, but it doesn't have to be only that. It can be complemented by other things. Uh, that perhaps have to do with how we deal with the Cyprus problem, how we negotiate the Cyprus problem, how we strategize within our own country, how we build uh, institutional capacity to analyze different threats and challenges and how we find solutions to these things and also how we try to connect different policy sectors and bring different institutions together so that we inform our policy making uh, in the best way possible so i think that's the resulting problem that um, we end up um, feeling comfortable uh, with what we do and and that takes away the need to find new and better solutions because we don't see reality as it is we see a rosy picture of how things are and I think this is um, largely a product of, of populism, unfortunately. Indeed, uh, I would have to agree, unfortunately, with this. Uh, thank you, Zinan. And finally, one just very last and uh, question. I mean, you, you mentioned this at the beginning as well. You mentioned uh, a couple of upcoming projects that you have uh, with uh, your own independent research, with Prio as well. What what's the next big thing out there for you apart from uh, these projects? What what else do you have uh, lined up? Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure. Um, uh, I, I I'm always you know opening new projects and um, closing old ones. Usually old projects become new ones <laughs> because a lot of time passes by. <laughs> uh, but the main areas, um, the main areas I'm, I'm concerned and I will still uh, be concerned is, um, is Turkish foreign policy, the, 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 the foreign policy of the Republic of Cyprus, which is a, a hugely underexplored issue. Uh, the, the volume um, I am working on, the collective volume will be the first of its kind, you know, looking at the foreign policy of the Republic of Cyprus in a multidimensional way. I still want to explore the dynamics of the Eastern Mediterranean as a rising region. Um, what are the limitations to that? What are the prospects of cooperation or conflict within it? 
Uh, and I also have another um, thing I would like to work on in the future. I'm not sure if, if I will ever do that is, uh, is to look at more theoretically the issue of foreign policy and see how we can bring into it debates on morality. Because uh, recently we've seen the international relations literature developing a lot on, the, on, on issues of emotions and affections uh, beyond ideology, of course, in, in foreign policy. We saw also books like uh, Why Leaders Lie. Uh, we saw, I mean, Joseph Nye's book on, on uh, I, think, I think it's morality and foreign policy, if I'm not mistaken, or something along those lines. So I would like to explore more this, um, this, this field and see how one could, uh, you know, suggest, uh, which is also paradoxical, suggest uh, some moral solutions to a field that is otherwise <laughs> hugely immoral. So that's going to be a challenge. Mm, immoral or perhaps... Amoral. Crude. Amoral or perhaps, yes, or perhaps crude pragmatically, in, in, in pragmatic terms, very crude in that regard. Yeah, I, I definitely see your point. And uh, at this point, I, again, many thanks for your contribution to this podcast. It has been very interesting, very insightful. And I definitely, I want to wish you all the best with these aspirations and your continuing research. And I look forward to reading more about uh, your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Petros. Thank you very much. 